the fact is that if you have a problem with the things that you make that are quote unquote bad, you don't understand what bad means. Bad doesn't actually mean anything. Bad is a mistake. Mistakes are actually lessons. If you make a mistake, it's because you pushed beyond your comfort zone to try and do something different. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This is a show where I speak with artists who draw or paint their worlds from observation, much like myself. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Danny Gregory, who is, brace yourselves, a creative director, ad man, author, speaker, artist, podcaster, filmmaker, and teacher. To put it simply, in his own words, he's a creative guy who makes all sorts of things. So in some ways, this was a challenging conversation to have. Where should I begin? Where could I possibly go? But in other ways, it was quite easy because Danny has wonderful answers to any question I had for him. I was introduced to Danny and his work by previous guests on the podcast. You might recall Shari, Suhita and Roshin have spoken about his wonderful book, Everyday Matters. That's when I became curious to learn more about Danny Gregory and I found his impressive list of achievements, the books, the education startup and his podcast, Art for All. What I learned from this conversation was the incredible journey of his personal life and the different influences he's picked up from growing up in different parts of the world. I also resonated with a lot of things we spoke about and you may be able to tell because I share more of myself in this conversation than I've done previously on the show. The title for today's episode comes from how Danny appears to use his art practice. We talk about the future of the creator economy as independent artists and the importance of following one's own compass, especially in a social media driven landscape. We talk about what really is the point of a sketchbook. Can a sketchbook be an end in itself instead of being a means to some other end? Can our art be a document of our lives? If you wondered about these things before, I hope you find some good answers in today's episode. I want to give a shout out to the listeners and members who have recently supported my work. Thank you, Becky, Ruth, Melanie, Vinayakam, Anne, Mark, Russ, Sanket, Santosh, Dinah, Mark, Etienne, Carl, Deborah, Emma, Martha, Ellen, Blake, Martha, Megan, and Ashley. Also, a special shout out to Michelle and to Jackie, who also bought me coffee this month. If you enjoy this show, it's really just that easy to support it and to keep me going. All you have to do is buy me a coffee. Find the link to my Buy Me a Coffee page in the show notes. Coming back to today's episode, as I went over our conversation a second and third time this week while editing, a hundred new questions came to mind. In, in, in that sense, this conversation is not really complete. But I ask myself, how could I even expect it to be complete? How can any first conversation be complete? So I hope to speak with Danny again in the near future and ask him many more questions and learn many more fascinating things. But if there's a single takeaway that I could give you from today's conversation, it's that every day matters, even if it's filled with just everyday matters. 
morning, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me on the Sneaky Art Podcast. It is a great honor to speak with you today. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, you have made this conversation, just the idea of starting this conversation very difficult for me for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I'm a little inexperienced at speaking to somebody who's got so much experience in these fields. And the second one is something that I can partly lay on you. It's that you have led such a complicated and diverse life doing so many different things that I don't know where I should start. And I don't know what's what's a good point to to really probe the kind of art you're making, the kind of things you're doing, and the the amount of influence you had on people. Because I've had I've spoken to about 16 or 17 people so far for my podcast and almost half of them have cited your books as the reason why they got into drawing from observation drawing from life so uh, on that note i was thinking about how i want to how i want to speak to you how i want to understand you and uh, keeping to the idea of influences um, i was reading your bio and i read about how you've grown up in these different places you've done all kinds of different jobs I want to find a common thread in these early influences in your life. Were they creative influences? Were there any artistic influences? The kind of things that drew your attention, the kind of things that excited you when you were growing up in Israel, in Pakistan, in the UK, and then you came to Princeton. What kind of influences did you pick up? And how did that lead to, after these many jobs, to a career in advertising? Okay, that should take a couple minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I have to—I'm not sure what the answer is, but let's see if we can figure it out. Um, because I grew up in lots of different places, and I was invariably the new kid in town. You know, I was always um, somebody who had to find out about the local culture. Um, in order to, to survive, to fit in, you know, and when you're a small kid, you know, I mean, kids can be very accepting, but they can also be very cruel at the same time. Yeah. So um, I think that in general, so for instance, my grandparents had lived in Pakistan and I had gone back and forth there four or five times. And Pakistan to me, I think more than any other place I ever lived was my home. That was where, that, that's what I think of as where I grew up. However, I'm clearly not Pakistani. I, you know, I in many ways didn't fit in there at all. I went to, every time I would go to visit my grandparents, I would be put in a different school. And, you know, a lot of Pakistanis speak English, but nonetheless, um, you know, you're always foreign. And I lived in Australia, similar thing in Israel. I lived on a kibbutz in Israel, which is like a um, sort of a socialist uh, um shared work kind of environments, difficult to explain. Um, and then coming to New York, uh, to Brooklyn when I was a teenager. So in every situation I would come in and I was always, um, I didn't know the sports, you know, I didn't know the language in some cases. Uh, I certainly didn't know the culture. And so I think that uh, prepared me to always be looking. Yeah. To always be, um, trying to figure out what is going on. And I think that that 
was key to a lot of my creative impulses because um, I was always I was tr- I was creating an identity each time, and um, I was also you know trying to fit in. I was learning accents, um, whatever whatever's necessary to, to make it. Um, and similarly, I think the other thing about me was I love books. And the books were were my best friends throughout. So I read a huge amount from when I was a little kid. And I think where I ended up, um, the form of art that I make, which is primarily in a book, came from that. You know, this desire to to make books, um, to put the world into books, all those things um, were really important to me and still are. I mean, I run a company, um, the middle name of my company is Book, and it's always been um, that. And so I think when it came to learning about art, which I only started to do in my third, late thirties, um, about art making, I was attracted to people who drew in books, who made books. I love books that were illustrated where there was a combination of, um, you know, like little drawings with diagrams and annotations and, uh, calligraphy, all those sorts of elements were just like, that's always been my aesthetic. And, um, you know, I loved uh, the notes that like explorers would take or biologists, um, uh, even even doctors, surgeons, you know, when they would draw the surgeries that they were doing. Uh, also, the, some of the books that were really important to me when I was a kid, uh, Winnie the Pooh, uh, The Wind in the Willows, a lot of books that had little spot illustrations that were line drawings surrounded by text. And um, so I, I think, and, and like Winnie the Pooh, the, the end papers of Winnie the Pooh is a map of a hundred acre wood where Winnie the Pooh lived. And so I think that whole idea of like fictional maps, all that stuff just kind of came together. And so when I first started to draw, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't think of myself as an artist in any way that that was just beyond it wasn't even it wasn't even a dream, I would say, because I liked the idea of making these things. But the idea of galleries and museums and all that just had nothing to do with anything I was interested in. So um, I think my point of, of, of beginning was as a writer, wanting to make books and wanted to do all that stuff in books. So in some ways it all kind of makes sense to me. Um, and some of the first books that I, well, not the first books, but uh, some of the books that I published were um, searching for other people who use sketchbooks. So I did a book called an illustrated life and then another book called an illustrated journey that were, were looking for other people who saw sketchbooks, not as just a, a place to sort of do loose sketches in order to do something else, but that the sketchbook itself was the end be all and end all of making art. So yeah, so that, that this is some of the elements I think. That's interesting. Uh, these, uh, a lot of what you're saying, it, it vibes with me, like the idea of, of trying to fit in and then finding solace in books. It leads to this reverence for the, the power of words and when you're young, that's something that you can aspire to. You know, you can't aspire to a lot of different kinds of power. You don't have access to those things. But being witty or being good with words is something that can help you fit in. It can help you to 
even defend yourself it can help you to to answer back and shut someone down and i like i for me when i was young and i i grew up in the same place i grew up in the same school all the years but still words became such an important weapon <laughs> it became a way to be able to express myself and to say things and then so when i i was i would read a lot too and i would look for the very similar kind of things as you mentioned that i loved books with illustrations in them and growing up for me the most influential author was roald dahl mm. who had illustrations by quentin blake in his right. books and it made me feel like not only storytelling but also illustration was something within our grasp it wasn't something that only others could do with extensive training the the drawings of quentin blake made it seem like it's accessible to me i could draw like that i could say that and it would make sense to someone and i'm thinking about uh so i'm thinking about how you then with these creative ideas with these uh, with these different things that you love how did you then uh come from the different kinds of jobs that you pursued as a young person you did so many different kinds of jobs you worked in mcdonalds you worked even in the white house for a while and how did you then find yourself moving towards a a profession in advertising what was what was the entry point and how much of it was intentional versus happenstance so very little in my life is intentional unfortunately i've i've just been buffeted by circumstance um to all different kinds of situations but you know i went uh when i graduated from princeton i had a degree in political science and um you know i had I had worked for my congressman and I had worked in the White House as in just as a summer intern and I had also worked for a local newspaper and I had worked at the college paper so I knew after those experiences I had no interest in being involved with politics and I had no interest in being a journalist but I had a degree in political science and I also had no interest in being an academic so there wasn't much left to do with this expensive hard hard earned degree that I had Um and my mother had had a, a couple of jobs in advertising when I was a teenager. And so when I graduated from college, she said to me, uh you can stay here in the house until the end of the summer, but then you have to get out. So you know, I just I thought okay, I just got to have to get a job so I can get some money. And uh I just started writing to and she said i don't know maybe you could get a job in advertising here a couple people i know in advertising and i talked to them and they said well maybe but then i decided to write to the ceo of every major ad agency in new york ridiculous thing to be doing i was like a nobody but i ended up getting like i think by sheer chutzpah i got like you know interviews with people and eventually i worked my way into a job that was that's a whole other story but but not really a point here but advertising you know and i continue to do advertising for the next 30 years always with the intention of actually starting my real career one day not having any idea what that was but advertising was just sort of what i was doing and you know i did well at it i made a good living at it um i rose up the ranks i became a chief creative officer and executive creative director various things um and you know in a lot of ways it was a good fit with my skill set because um advertising and again I was a copywriter not an art director which are the two creative jobs um but I was always a writer and it was an opportunity to um 
to tell stories? I mean, generally, when you're a creative person in advertising, you're putting on different costumes. Um, you know, so you're get you're basically um, dressing up as a, as a particular brand, and then talking in that brand's voice. So that felt pretty familiar to me. You know, I'd, I'd put on different identities throughout my life. So that made sense. Um, you're also combining words and images. And that was also something that felt familiar to me. Um, I also, I just had an innate sense of design and then ultimately filmmaking. And I ended up making a lot of commercials and editing and just all the different parts of it. There's just so many. And you also work with interesting creative people a lot of whom are also somewhat ambivalent about their jobs. So it just, it was just a a pretty good fit. Um, And I continued doing it until one day I decided to stop. Yeah. Well, uh, you did decide to stop, but it seems like at all these points, you were pursuing some form of expressing your creativity and you're picking up creative influences from the kinds of people you're working around and you're working around people talented in multiple forms of creative expression, people purely in art and art direction then is its own game and writing in order for, uh, to, to appeal to someone, you know, writing, not for your own sake, writing, not when you have someone's attention for the, uh, for the course of 300 pages or 400 pages, but writing for maybe in print, it would be half a page or in, in television, it would be 30 seconds. That's a whole different kind of writing and it tunes you into so many other other demands, expectations, and meeting those expectations. Also, also, I sense like g- gaining a sense of what is, is it that people like, what is it that people want to hear, and that sometimes that kind of idea almost conflicts with and with people's impressions of what an artistic career is, because you hear that an artistic career should be about plumbing deep inside yourself and finding what you want to say. And perhaps even writing is thought of in that way often. Whereas in this kind of expression, you're not really saying what necessarily what you want to say, but you're trying to say what you think people also want to hear and the way they want to hear it. Do you think these things kind of merge in some way? They make you like a super good writer then once you have an idea of expressing yourself plus knowing tapping into other people's minds about what they want to read or hear or listen to? Um, I, no, I don't think so. I think that um, the main thing that you do in advertising is you sell, you're a salesman. And yes, you want people to like you and you want to engage them. You want to um, make them pay attention to you. Um you know, when they when they would rather not, you're also uh, working for somebody else. So it's somebody else's message. Somebody else approves what you're doing. Somebody else funds what you're doing. So I, I remember reading an article in Harper's Magazine years ago in which it was about advertising. And the author said, uh, creative people in advertising are artists who have nothing to say. And it's kind of a cruel thing to say, but, but I think it's somewhat true. I think it's like, it's like you have a skill set and you are willing to apply them to whatever is asked of you, you know, you know, so, and there are creative people who I've met in advertising who had other side lives, you know, but it was difficult because, um, 
you develop a lot of muscles around this sort of uh, persuasion. And also, you know, you're not the sole arbiter of what you do. So, you know, I think, I think it is a, it is a compromise that has some pretty profound effects on you. You know, it also is a form that is interesting. So when I was starting to kind of chronicle my life in my sketchbook, I was using a lot of conventions of advertising. As you say, I was writing short pieces. Um, I would often use headlines. I would think about design. I would think about the role the visual had. I was thinking about the page. Um, you know, whereas I think if I had been a fine artist, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily considered those things. I would have, you know, I might have made paintings and considered, you know, a large piece of paper and what it would look like hanging on the wall. But I was used to having this one-to-one connection with the consumer of what I made, right? It's an individual person reading a magazine, you know, you're holding it in your hand. It's not hanging on the wall surrounded by other people. It's not in a a room. It's a one-to-one kind of thing. And I think that that helped to kind of shape the form that I ended up working in. So ultimately, it took me a long time, honestly, to be authentic, and I still struggle with it um, because a lot. When I first started to kind of step out and make things in public, it was on a blog, and then ultimately, I ended up having followers and social media and all that stuff. And there's a certain element of selling that happens there too, right? I mean, to be honest. Uh, fine artists who show in galleries have to sell as well at some point. Yeah. But I think when you're on social media, social media is always asking you to do things that people will like. And the idea of likes as a metric, that's not normally what happens in art. You know, I mean, you might want to make sales, but I don't think most artists are just thinking about how many random people will like this. I think that's not the point. I think you're trying to find, and it's going back to authenticity. I think you're trying to say, I want to tell you about this feeling that I have about the world. Um, and the vast majority of people won't respond to that. They don't have, they won't have that feeling about the world, but some people will. And for those people, there is huge meaning in the fact that they found you and that you can guide them in doing this, you know? And I think similarly as a writer, you can write a bestseller that sells millions, but you've had to make a lot of compromises probably in what you're talking about. Or you can write um, a book that a very small audience likes, but it really means a huge amount to them. You know, so, you know, I, I, and I think you have to, in the latter case, you have to f- be willing to face enormous amounts of rejection and, you know, a sense of that you failed because everybody doesn't love you. But the, the fact is, you know, it's more important, I think, to be true to yourself and to say something that, you know, really has meaning. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree, actually. Uh, I also always only wanted to be a writer. That's the thing that I did so passionately on the side while I was made to do a lot of traditional things and traditional education uh, paths that I followed. And for me, uh, also, it the first outlet was uh, writing online. So when blogs became a thing in the early internet, like early 2000s, I immediately made a blog. And for the first time, I thought about writing and being funny in my writing and finding appreciation from others. Like just that idea that someone was reading what I was writing made me 
feel so empowered and I did it more and more and more. And I'm thinking about how you reference the the creative career within advertising when you're working for somebody, when you're working under certain guidelines within certain within a certain framework, but but doing a very particular role. And also that quote that uh, that a creative person in advertising is somebody who doesn't have anything to say. And I'm remind, I'm thinking about supports versus crutches, and how at a certain phase in our life you do need the support. You might grow up with uh, a lot of talent in purely drawing or purely coming up with witty things, witty sentences and interesting sentences, but you don't have anything to say or you don't have anything to express through your art yet because you simply haven't gathered in those experiences that give you something to let out into the world. And at that time, having that kind of framework, I imagine, is a very nice support system, which almost like an incubation chamber in which you can develop your skills further. You can understand what you like and dislike. Maybe you grow up to dislike the idea of advertising anymore and then you leave it and then you start expressing yourself. Maybe then you don't and it becomes a crutch and it becomes the only way that you're able to express yourself and left to your own devices, you don't really end up saying anything. And I had that kind of that kind of journey also because... I've only ever been putting my creative work online. I've never worked for anybody for my creative work and unless I was working on commission for an agency or otherwise. I've never been consistently employed for my creativity, let's say. So I was writing online and I was writing more when people appreciated it. And then there was a shift in algorithms. We turned towards Facebook and we turned towards likes. And suddenly the success criteria changed. People stopped reading words so much. They wanted pictures, then they wanted memes, then they wanted videos. And most of all, like you mentioned, we wanted likes. And the idea of chasing likes seemed bizarre to me initially. It worked for a while. And while I was doing well, I didn't question it. I thought it's a great thing that more and more people like you. It's an infinitely large world and you can get to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 likes. That's great. But then that... the more you do it, the more you come to realize, the more you try to churn out that creativity and then you've measured now against likes. So when the like number falls, you feel like a failure. When it goes up again, it's a dopamine rush. So you're looking for that rush uh, on and on. And you come to that same conclusion that you just said that are you uh, cheapening what you want to say? Are you reducing what you want to say? Is it success to be liked by the most number of people? When did that become the criteria for a good job? That more number of people or the most number of people like you. And it brings into, it brings this kind of strange situation where you're in. It's almost like for me, now that I'm drawing and I'm making art also, and this has also happened to me completely accidentally. I never imagined I would be an artist or somebody would pay me for a drawing. But here we are. Uh, It's this constant conflict between what do you do for yourself? Am I doing it for myself? Or am I somehow deluding myself into thinking that this drawing was made for me or it's made according to the things that I think are a good drawing or did I do it because the last one did well and that's how I want this one to be. So that's why I'm drawing this particular thing. It, it's, it's, also, it's also interesting to me because I've always thought, and this might be biased towards me 
uh, valuing my experience over the experience of others, just thinking that I've always done things to put online and they have always been there. They've always worked and I've always made the next worked in the sense of I continued making more things after that. That's the only success consistent criteria that I can think of because somebody else wanted to read it because somebody else wanted to see my drawing. And if you're not motivated by that, if you do it only for yourself, there is this idea that you might be chasing something deeper inside you. But there is also this, <laughs> this idea, and this is, this is where my personal bias comes in, that you're just sort of almost full of yourself. And you don't, if you're not moving anybody with your art, if you're not affecting, and this is how I think about even my urban sketches now. If I'm not able to say something with it, what's the point of it? What's the point of just just drawing just something that nobody cares for. Do you think that's a wise idea? Do you think it's it's flawed in some ways? Um, I think it's a function of the age that we live in, you know, where you're able to get attention, you know, but the reality is that, you know, I mean, take the, the artist who I look to the most in trying to understand my own path is, is Van Gogh, you know, and Van Gogh, started out wanting to be a commercial artist. He wanted to paint um, landscapes that the Dutch bourgeoisie would want to hang in their living rooms. You know, he wanted, he was, he wasn't, he, I mean, he was, uh, had a very simple kind of goal and he was terrible at it. And, you know, he went and tried to study with various artists who made a living that doing that. And, you know, they just said, you're awful at it and nobody's going to buy these. And, um, and eventually, I mean, he was lucky that he had his brother to pay for him, but eventually he became so in love with painting that that's all that mattered. And then he went to Paris and he met a lot of other artists um, and he expanded, you know, what he thought he could do. But I think ultimately what drove him was a vague sense that he could sell stuff, but by and large, just this burning desire in himself to explore what he was doing, you know, and that's why he went to places, creative places that um, a lot of other people didn't go to, you know, and I think about people who I know who are illustrators. So a lot of people who I coach or who are in my community, they all say to me, how do I develop a style, you know? And, um, and I think, Why? What difference does that make? It only matters if you're an, a professional illustrator. If you're an illustrator and you have a style of making drawings so that clients can say, oh, this guy draws, you know, like Quentin Blake. So therefore, if I want a Quentin Blake type guy, I go to him, you know, but when it comes to fine art, that's not terribly important. I mean, it's, a, you know, generally they're buying you finished products anyway, but your style is just not a thing that matters. It matters on Instagram. You know, it matters a lot because there you say, oh, I like his style. I'm going to follow him. Likes on social media aren't really just about whether people like you. It's about whether the, the um, algorithm likes you. And if the algorithm likes you, then it will spread what you do further. And if it spreads what you do further, what? What will happen? possibly somebody might see you and 
buy something that you made if you make that available. Um, but more likely, it's not really going to make any difference. Um, it's It might bring you to the attention of somebody who would provide you with an opportunity, maybe. But then again, aren't there better ways of finding those opportunities? The whole problem is that social media is designed to sell advertising. And it's a machine that has nothing to do with you and your goal. You are simply a person who's creating content for free for this machine in order to sell ads. And it's and it's such a seductive mechanism that's been built. And it's so Pavlovian in that, you know, you're responding to these these likes that are showing up. It's just not a game that that you should be spending a lot of your time on because it's created the illusion that this is what you do if you're serious. But it's not. And the fact is that when you actually want to sell something, social media is really not terribly helpful to you. So you can cultivate this enormous following. And then you can say, all right, I've been doing all this stuff for you for free. Now I'd like you to buy a book or a print or sign up for a class or and suddenly everybody's looking the other way. Right. So you may have gained 100,000 followers and maybe, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand of them will follow you. But but a lot of them are like 11 year olds in, you know, Thailand. They're not they're not the people who are going to actually be your customers. So what are you doing exactly? Why are you putting all that energy into it? Is it because we're just so insecure? So here's another thing is if you say to yourself, you know what, I need to take stock of what my goals are and what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? What's it actually doing for me? And I think if you say, when I draw, I feel really good. I get, that's the dopamine rush I want to have, you know, is this sense of uh, being in the flow, of um, seeing in a fresh way, of engaging with my environment, the sheer sensuality of what a brush or a pen feels like in your hand on paper, um, the fact that your mind slows and trouble goes away, or the fact that you are recording high density memories that will enrich you. The fact that you're seeing beauty where you didn't know there was beauty, you're drawing some crumbling old building and, you know, you're drawing a Walmart and suddenly you're seeing beauty in it, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, that is the actual reward. And so if, you know, you're immediately taking a picture of it and putting it on Instagram before you're even done, you're missing the point, you know, and you have to, you have to look into yourself and, and wonder why do you need all this validation is the reason you need validation because you were rejected as an artist when you were, you know, 11 or 16 or 23, when somebody said to you, you're not really an artist or you're not applying to art school or, or you can't make it, or you had a bad crit in art school or, you know, you're, you know, I think of how many people I know who went to design school because they love to draw. And then they came out of design school and they got a job designing collateral for an insurance company. And they're working in-house in a bank or an insurance company or a pharmaceutical company or whatever it is. And then one day they say, what am I doing? But I've got a meeting in half an hour or I've got a, you know, it's all that stuff. And then you push that side stuff away because nobody cares about that aspect of you except you. And, and you think that the people on Instagram do, but they don't. They don't care either, you know, and it's it and it's because it involves so little to support you so little. It's literally you tap a finger 
It's, I mean, I can't imagine any smaller gesture that you could make to support somebody than that, you know? So, so let's, let's be a bit cynical about it and say, where do you really, if you have so many hours in the day, what are really the ones that are going to bring you pleasure and, and validation? And the reason that you're constantly questioning it is because of your inner critic. It's not because you're wrong. It's because you have mechanisms built into you that want to prevent you from taking the risks that you have to take to be an artist, right? You know, there's, there's all these things that, that, that um, are hardwired into us as animals that go back millions of years. And those things say to you, don't do stuff that's different. Don't do stuff that's new. Stay where you are. Be safe. Eat what you're, you know, you are familiar with. Stay, you know, be suspicious of strangers. You know, all that stuff. That's how we stay alive. But it's, most of it is irrelevant. But it's, again, very, very powerful stuff in our heads. And if you can say, you know what? It's important to me to take a risk. It's not a huge risk. It's not a huge risk to do a drawing. But you'd be amazed at how terrifying people find it to be, you know? You know, I mean, I have so many people say to me, I have a really nice sketchbook and I really don't want to ruin it by drawing in it. I'm like, well, what the hell did you buy it for? How much did it cost you? You know, it costs you like two cups of coffee, but you're afraid to ruin it by drawing in it. I mean, there's just enormous, enormous complexity associated with all this. All right. Sorry. Sorry to ramble. No, uh, no, absolutely. You've covered a lot of a lot of things that I'm also thinking about, because, of course, I, I initially when I started putting my work online and it started with writing and blogs and being funny uh, and it worked and that replaced my inner uh, sieving or uh, distillation mechanism. I stopped thinking about what works. I was simply seeing the results outside and I was chasing that high. And then when it fails, you can, because the algorithm changes, like you said, the algorithm is designed for ads and the algorithm is not designed to help you. And hopefully you can, the only hope you have is that one day those interests will align simply because of that moment in time or that moment in what is trending globally, that the algorithm will rise, uh, raise you up as part of the wave and you will ride that for a long time. And then you hope to catch the next wave and the next wave and the next wave. And again, you substitute your inner, your inner judgment of what you want to do or what you like doing with something that's outside. And the Pavlovian example is exactly correct because what we are doing is we are replacing our inner critic who is important as well as really, really terrible for us, but also important. And we're replacing that with that like button and replacing uh, our notion of what is good or bad with what did somebody else think? You immediately get this satisfaction. You immediately get this response when somebody likes you on Instagram and you don't have to think about why you did the drawing. You don't have to think about whether it was worth it, whether it gave you joy. And we've almost moved away from this concept uh, over the last 20 years of thinking about ourselves, uh, our own joy. And we started focusing on what is it that other people care for? Do I even need to have this life experience if I can't share it on Instagram? Do I need to experience uh, the, the thrill of a painting if it's not worthy of being shared and it doesn't look like what it should look like? I'm thinking of that fear of the blank page and I talk about that with people. I, I'm start, started to give this workshop on Zoom with people who don't draw. 
specifically. And the thing I make them do first is I make them write on top of the blank page. Today, I'm going to make a lot of bad art. And the idea is that meet that fear and tell it that, yes, I'm going to do bad drawings, but that is not going to stop me. The idea of good drawings being the only drawings that are worth making is so absurd. But again, it's come to us because we're exposed to so much. We, uh, when somebody buys a sketchbook that they intend to draw in and they intend, they put their money into it because they intend to get that amount of joy from it. But they don't go into it because of these prior images of what a sketchbook page should look like. What they've seen while scrolling through Instagram, what they've seen on the internet otherwise, all the artists they like and they know and they're imagining all the different ways that they'll fall short of that perfect image, which will get those many likes. And so they don't go into it. So uh, what I'm thinking about is, what is this inner critic? Has this inner critic worsened for us over the years because of social media? There is this flip side to it that it's only in social media has enabled so many people to think that they can become artists who never would have considered that this was a viable profession, myself included. Not maybe social media, but definitely the internet enabled me to think that I could do something that somebody would care for. And it's okay that I don't have a degree in writing or I don't have a degree in art. That's not necessary. I can directly speak to people who care about my work. The other side is that somebody like Van Gogh, if there was social media, maybe would he have created so many paintings or would he have given up long ago knowing that he's not getting the likes, he's not making the sales? Well, it's a double-edged sword, as you say. I mean, I think the fact is there are a lot more people who are feeling comfortable making art now. I don't know that there are more artists, but there's certainly more people who now see a purpose to it. And I think that's part of what it is. You know, you think about how many people there were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, who maybe painted on, you know, Sundays and, you know, put it in a cupboard somewhere and people who wrote and they wrote diaries or they wrote short stories and they kept them in a drawer. So now there are more people who feel like, okay, I can make something because it's, there's a platform for doing it, you know, but you could also think back more hundreds of years and you could say, you know, think about times when people did cave paintings or think about times when people decorated the outside of their houses by painting them. You know, you think about um, people who make beautiful gardens or people who design the fabric that they make their clothes out of, or people who are just craftsmen. There's just, there are lots of other forms of creativity that weren't necessarily recognized as art because they didn't um, make money for anybody. You know, I mean, the art establishment which again is a pretty new thing. It's really only a couple hundred years old that there's been this whole network of galleries and auction houses and museums and so forth. Um, it used to be that it was basically the church and very wealthy people who supported artists, right? So, you know, there there's definitely many more outlets for people to put stuff up. The question is, what is their compensation for doing it? Because in a lot of cases, it's advertising. So you start a YouTube channel um, and then you live off ads that you've made stuff, you know, or, you know, you, maybe you sell, a, you make a book and you put it on Amazon, you make a bit of money. Amazon makes a lot more money. 
than you did from that book. Um, so, you know, in general, artists are still in the same position of, you know, being just cogs in this giant machine that is generating a lot more money for a lot of other people. So, you know, we have platforms to put stuff out there. It encourages us, but ultimately the real reason that we should be doing it or the reason that it's going to be the most rewarding is our own reason. You know, um, our reason, the things that it makes us feel, the insights that it gives us into our lives. That's so much more valuable, so much less transient. You're not going to change your life and your outlook on life because of likes on Instagram. There's no way that that's going to have that profound feeling. It is a sugar high. But I know a lot of people who said I my self-worth was really low. And then when I, and it was because somebody had said, you can't draw when I was nine. And now I'm making art on a regular basis and I feel free and I feel liberated. And it's not because of what other people think of it. It's because I reversed this thing in me and I saw an ability that I had, that I had been suppressing. And when I did that, it gave me permission to look at my whole self, my whole life and say, what else am I not doing? What else, how else am I wrong about myself? What else could I be doing that I have been afraid of? And it's just on a whole other plane than the conversation that we're having about strangers and their, you know, fleeting acknowledgement. That's, that's so irrelevant. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, art has the power to, to maybe fill the void that that the absence or the death of religion has in our society has 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 created right a, a connection to the larger universe a connection to meaning um, a discovery of the of the beauty around us all these things um, are something that we really need as as beings as creatures um, and organized religion right now is you know has let a lot of people down in some ways. So what are we going to do to fill that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you think with these, with these accesses now, so being able to see like the person you're speaking about who maybe at a young age was discouraged from pursuing art, but then found permission somewhere and thinking of just that, that word, that word is so important. We, we don't give ourselves permission to make art and often we don't even think of it that way. We think of it as just taken as an absolute objective fact that you're not allowed to make art until you're an artist and you can't be an artist unless you have relevant education or you are a child gene, child prodigy or what, or you have just simply too much time on your hands. You shouldn't, you don't have any business participating in this act of creative expression of creating something. Has this has this always been has it always been this way? Has it always been this difficult? Uh, when you think 50 years ago, somebody writing in their diary, was it uh, they, they had no expectation that somebody would read it or approve of it. But today, if somebody is to start a blog, then that is with the idea that it's going to go viral, almost a lot of popular understanding of it is with this idea. So have we shifted that inner critic and laid it on to other people to do the job of telling us if we are worthy? Yeah. I mean, look, there's probably close to a million blogs out there. There may be more. 
you know, very few went viral. Um, but I still think a lot of people got pleasure out of out of writing them. I started my blog in 2003 for one other person. I had a friend in Yorkshire who was also a blogger. And I thought, as a joke, I'll set up a blog and start writing stuff for him. You know, everything that I did then grew up out of that. Um, I wrote a book called The Creative License. And the subtitle of that book is Giving Yourself Permission to Be the Artist You Truly Are. The artist you truly are isn't necessarily a successful, famous, wealthy, acknowledged artist. The artist that you truly are is the artist you were when you were seven, when you would sit at the at the uh, kitchen table with a box of crayons and you would engage with the world, with your imagination, with drawings on a piece of paper that had no ultimate value to you. Like you, you were doing drawings and maybe your mother would say, oh, that's so nice. Let me hang it on the fridge. Um, but if you've ever dealt with a small kid and their drawings and you say something like that to them, they are like, yeah, okay. Uh, their feeling is I'm having fun doing this and I'm making a world. And like, I remember my, my son would like make armies and he would draw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers. And he would tell stories and he would write stuff and he would make up characters and cars and all that kind of, he was in control. He was making a world. And, you know, I would fetishistically collect all of these drawings that he made. And I actually would put them into scrapbooks and I had bindings and he never cared. He never cared then. He never cared later on. It was irrelevant. And he actually ended up going to art school, ironically. But everybody had that experience. Every one of us had that experience because that's how we first, before we could write words, that's how we kind of engage and found meaning and gained a sense of control over the world. That's an, a, f a form of art making that we can still have in ourselves. But, you know, we resist it so many ways we resisted because it doesn't seem to have purpose it seems to be a waste of time we don't have talent all these things that when you were seven you didn't say when you played when you played when you created when you were um, master of your own universe all those things are really important for us to not lose sight of because we rarely later in life have that sense of ourselves and our and have that feeling of joy and um, discovery that we had at that point. So why not use just that as your reason for doing it? Just to see if you can do that for a day or two. And it doesn't, I mean, who cares if anybody else sees that? That's, that's like watching somebody else, like watch you, you know, go to the bathroom. It's not, it's your own private personal thing that you're doing and making. It's not about anybody else. Um, and I think you have to remember that art the acknowledgement of other people when it comes to your art making is a modern concept that is a, an extension of the market. The market wants scarcity in order to create value. And if everybody and his brother is an artist, then how do you charge millions of dollars? I mean, look what's, what's been going on recently with these um, virtual art pieces, right? So the you, NFTs. NFTs, right? So you have like an animated GIF which is a thing that's designed to be shared, but you decide to create scarcity around it. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And it has, and, and so you, so you'd say, so it's basically this industry has said, we're going to try and reverse the inevitable movement of, of technology and create scarcity where there absolutely isn't and shouldn't be. 
art should be shared because, you know, it brings you joy and maybe other people will get joy out of it too. But instead, it's become something that is uh, hidden away in the the living rooms or possibly the storage rooms of powerful, wealthy people and not to be shared with people, not to be seen and not to benefit the artist necessarily, because in many cases, the artist didn't get much of anything out of it, but to support this whole machine. I hate to sound like some sort of Marxist doctrinaire, but the fact is, the fact is it has created a lot of misery for creative people. And, you know, and uh, YouTube and things like that are actually an enormous opportunity because you can make stuff and you can find a platform for it, but don't obsess over the size of your audience because what really matters is what if you found three people who really, really loved it, engaged with it, you know, wouldn't that be so much better than if you got a hundred million people who vaguely knew what you did and sort of gave it a thumbs up the opportunity to have a real meaningful change. To somebody, I mean, I, have long been obsessed with this idea. Um, there's an article that was written by one of the founders of Wired magazine. And it's called A Thousand True Fans. Yeah, I yeah. was going to just reference that right. because, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I've also been thinking of for the last couple of years that uh, from failing and alternatively randomly succeeding at these social media games, that what is the, what is the point? What happens once you get 10,000 likes for a drawing? what happens? Nothing comes from it. The next drawing could again attract just 10 or 20 likes. And so that success doesn't really mean anything. If you want to keep, you want to keep moving on, you want to keep building on something. And I, I chanced upon the 1000 true fan model. And that's what I've been working towards myself, thinking not about, not about these, uh, these exchanges or these trade platforms in which your value is created because you have a story as an artist. And then that value is naturally created only a hundred years after you're gone, preferably in some tragic, sad way so that your art can have tragic, sad value again, referencing Vincent van Gogh and how his art has value today because, Oh, look at the tragic artist who never succeeded, but still made art. And now his work is locked up in these places where you pay $30 or $50 to see it. Sometimes if you happen to be lucky enough to live in that country, um, I'm thinking of something you said earlier just now, and I really loved it. You said how children are masters of their universe. And that is something I so completely agree with. When we are kids and we are doing these things, and I used to do uh, the same exactly like that, the color crayon drawings when I was six or seven years old, and I would draw my G.I. Joe's figures and I would put them in elaborate battle scenes. I was not thinking about how they look at the end. I was taking joy from the act of doing it. It was a process-oriented uh, task, not a goal-oriented task. I was not thinking of getting joy from having done it, from it looking as good as something else, but simply the act of doing it in and spending that time to do it. So the longer I spent, the more joy I would get. Just like when you're playing, the longer you play, the more fun you have. You don't get you're not happier having played and afterwards thinking how well you played, for example, you just, you just do it. And the doing it is the joy. But at some point when we grow up, we relegate this universe and the right to find joy in it. We surrender it to other people who get to then decide for us. Do are you allowed to have fun from that? Are you allowed to think that that was a good use of your time? 
and we we've given uh, we've ceded control of all of those all of those primary base mechanisms of getting joy from from things we do to other people to decide for us whether they are worthy of being done whether we are worthy of doing them yeah it's true i mean think about the things that take up our day as adults there's you know this obligations there's work um and then there's leisure and leisure by and large is about consumption of content that somebody else created right you lie on the couch and you watch netflix there are some things that we do that kind of tie back to that feeling it might be cooking you might enjoy cooking dinner for your family trying out a new recipe it might be i don't know playing tennis playing golf going to the gym uh you know tracking your running every day it might be those kinds of things um and those are things that we do without worrying about who else knows about it. I mean, we do it for the people we love. Um, you know, we do it without trying to be professional. Like imagine if you decided, you know, I, I'm not going to cook because I can't be a four-star chef. You know, or I can't play tennis at my, you know, gym with my friend because, you know, I'm not going to be in the U.S. Open this year. Yeah, or you can't dance at a wedding because you're not a trained exactly. dancer. Or I can't, <laughs> I can't sing in the shower. I can't sing in the shower because I'm not, you know, going to get a recording contract. But with art, we do feel that way. With art, I don't have talent. Oh, what if somebody sees it? Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. Blah 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 blah. I don't know why that particular thing, which could bring you so much pleasure, has become such a problem for us. You know, but I was also thinking. You know, the 10,000, the thousand true fans, the important part of the thousand true fans is the true, not the thousand. You, you could have 100 true fans. You could have 10 true fans. In you fact, know. he has updated that article to include the 100 true fan model. Good, good. That's lowering expectations. Because um, getting 1,000 true fans is still kind of difficult. But um, the thing is, this podcast is we're having a conversation that's interesting to me and hopefully it's interesting to you. And hopefully some people are listening to this and saying, you know, that this is interesting. Like I hadn't thought about that. Now does this sneaky artist have to vie with Joe Rogan or with, you know, the biggest podcasts to have been useful? No, of course not. It's there, there may be nowhere else anybody can go and have this conversation about art or have this conversation about ideas. And so it's valuable to you and me and whoever's listening and who finds it interesting. So it was worth doing, you know, it was worth doing because of that, because it's feels true. It feels illuminating and end of story. Success has nothing to do with it. That's success. Popularity has nothing to do with it, you know? Um, and if, and if we were having this conversation in a way that, uh, 10 million people could listen to it, it would be a pretty different conversation. You know, there would be 17 producers around us. They would be editing it. There would be commercials inserted into it. You know, it would be a five minute segment. It would be different, but we have the freedom to have this conversation. Similarly, you have the freedom to be an artist, maybe not a great artist. You don't have the freedom to be a, you know, you might be great, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, the last book I wrote was called uh, How to Draw Without Talent. And, you know, that was because talent is something that inhibits people so much, whether they have it, even those who do have it feel burdened by it. 
And those who don't have it feel, you know, like they can't do anything. There's no point in trying because I wasn't born with a head start. But that's all it is because there's a lot of people who have talent. There's a lot of people who are successful and they're also miserable. So don't worry about that. Do what you want to do. Do it and see what happens. See what happens because you trying to control the outcome, trying to think it needs to be this because of this and that, you don't know. You don't know. Just wait and see what will happen. But don't let that inhibit you from taking out the crayons and you know having a go at it. Yeah, I, I was just speaking to participants in my workshop and I put this situation to them that how often do we think that maybe one out of three drawings we make are going to be just absolutely terrible and that idea keeps us from drawing. And I told them how uh, I've spoken to such fantastic artists on my podcast and many of them also still have exact percentage of bad drawings in their minds. Why do they still make art if they feel that 33% of their drawings are not good? They make art because they have learned to discard that parameter as an exclusion criteria. They are not thinking of that as a reason to decide whether or not to make art. That is a separate point irrelevant. The reason why they make art is because of a very center, keeping, keeping this feeling centered, right? Like, like we were just talking about this feeling of just, just doing because you get joy from doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think your one in three number is uh, very optimistic. <laughs> Look, the fact is that Picasso, when you think about Picasso, how many, what art do you think of? How many pieces of art do you think of? You know, there's, um, you know, there's uh, probably six or seven, maybe you could name six or seven pieces by Picasso, you know, and, the fact is that Picasso made, there's something like 70,000 works of art that Picasso made. He made um, paintings, he made sculptures, he wrote poetry, he wrote a play, he uh, did prints, he did tapestries, he did many, many, many things. There's huge numbers, unknown numbers, in fact, of Picasso pieces that are in a, a hidden storage place in France that were never to be released. So Picasso made enormous amounts of art and, you know, you know of maybe 10 of them and scholars know of maybe a hundred of them, but yet there's, you know, a factor of a hundred more than that. And you know that those ones that were kept, there were also a lot of them that he just threw away immediately. It's like, this is garbage. I threw it away. The fact is that if you have a problem with the things that you make that are quote unquote bad, you don't understand what bad means. Bad doesn't actually mean anything. Bad is a mistake. Mistakes are actually lessons. If you make a mistake, it's because you pushed beyond your comfort zone to try and do something different. Or it means that you weren't paying attention. Your mind was wandering. You were thinking about something else. And so you didn't draw properly because you weren't really slowing down enough to look. Again, those are just lessons. There's nothing wrong with either of them. If every time you sat down with a pen and a piece of paper, you could draw a photograph of what you saw, Honestly, how long would you draw for? I, I think I would get bored pretty quickly. If every, every drawing I did was like, man, that looks exactly like, it would it's, it's be like, well, yeah, what's the point? Yeah, it, it, brings to mind this, it brings to mind this idea that, you know, it's so important to embrace mistakes because there's no joy from, there's no joy from consistently doing the right thing, but there's also no joy in 
exactly doing the perfect thing either. Like I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by, and I've maybe I've mentioned it on my podcast already before, so it's going to come up twice to listeners. But uh, a quote by my favorite musician Miles Davis, and he said that once is a mistake, twice is an idea, and three times is style. So the things that we like about the artists that we like are often not the hyper realistic like Picasso for example it's not that we like his art because that is exactly how a person looks when they are sad and they're holding a guitar it's because he's embraced what we think of traditionally as mistakes and he has put it through this mechanism which has churned out 70,000 plus things and that has distilled it into what is the Picasso style that we recognize or the styles over the decades, the different influences, the different eras, the different kinds of representation that he's done. But it becoming a thing that he calls a finished product is also a result of embracing imperfections. Sure. That's what makes it interesting. Learning new stuff, trying new stuff. And if you succeed at every small thing that you try, well, I don't know. I think you're another species. I think we're all, we're all used to failing. It starts when we first take our first step. You know, if a baby got up and could immediately like run, it would be unearthly. Um, we're, we're used to falling down and picking ourselves up and trying again. I mean, it's, it's like grow up, you know, just, just, it's fine to make mistakes. Stop, stop worrying about that part of it. You just don't understand. You're also not a good judge. That's often the case. You're not a good judge of your own work. So what you consider a disaster, sometimes if you put it away and come back to it the next day, the next week, the next year, you'll have completely different feelings about it. You're, you know, but the fact is that when you started to draw this thing, you had a certain intention and then you didn't achieve that intention. And so you thought it was a mistake. But if you've forgotten what your intention was, you can judge the work objectively and then you can say, that's interesting. I tried this and that didn't quite work out there, but that was, that's, I hadn't seen myself do that before. That's kind of cool. Or that thing that I did, I tried it there, it didn't work. And then six months later, like I had gra- mastered that thing and was doing something else. You know, just back, give yourself some, some, some breathing room to develop. Yeah, that's such a good point. And speaking about uh, the idea of learning new skills and allowing yourself to learn new skills, um, I, I want to talk about how you came to pursue drawing. Because for the longest time, even though you've been creative, you weren't drawing per se. And it was a, a traumatic life event that brought you to this uh, junction where you picked up a sketchbook and you started to draw. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about this? And also, why did you turn to drawing as the medium of expression at that time? So um, when I was in my mid-30s, um, my I had a son who was nine months old. And my wife was um, was working in the fashion industry. And I was working in advertising. Um, and... You know, we had a very successful life from all accounts. We had uh, you know, a nice apartment. We had um, we were living in New York City. It was all great. And then um, one day, my wife was on her way to work, and she fell off the subway platform onto the tra- tracks, and the train rolled through, and it rolled over her. Three cars rolled over her, and it broke her back, and it left her paraplegic. Um, and so 
from literally one minute to the next, our lives radically changed. And uh, for me, it was a very difficult situation, obviously. Um, for my wife, it was even more difficult situation. Um, but my wife had something to focus on, which was getting better, and then figuring out how to raise our son, who's, you know, he literally took his first steps in her hospital room. Um, and so we had to kind of invent a new life for ourselves, particularly for her. It was, you know, a, in her case, it was a physical life. But in my case, um, it was very difficult because I thought I had done everything right. I thought I had led the life I was supposed to live. I had made the decisions I was supposed to make. I had succeeded at the, at the challenges that had been given to me. And, um, you know, I had a great career and I, all those things that I was supposed to do to be happy. Um, and suddenly life had no meaning to me. Like life was really uh, a very dark place. And when I would think about the future, I couldn't imagine it. You know, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't imagine what it was going to be like to have a wife in a wheelchair. I couldn't imagine what it was going to be like for her and for my son. What was, and so I reached out to um, people in religion who, you know, often help you to deal with these kinds of situations. Like, like why did this, why did bad things happen to good people kind of thing? And I read books and I talked to ministers and to rabbis and I, I spoke to um, a Zen priest, all these different people. Um, and nothing really resonated with me. And this went on for uh, a couple of years. And then uh, I started, I read a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And that book was about really trying to work through your issues basically by writing, writing every morning, doing automatic writing for three, three pages of writing. And I, I did that. And that was also not really satisfying to me. It was very negative. A lot of negativity came out in these processes, a lot of darkness. Um, and then one day I had this impulse to go and draw the contents of my medicine cabinet in my bathroom. And I really, I hadn't drawn since, and I doodled meetings and drawn sketches for stuff and work, but I hadn't really drawn for pleasure since I was in high school. And um, so I did this drawing of the inside of a very simple contour line drawing of, the, of all the bottles and boxes and stuff like that in my thing. And it felt really good to me. Like that feeling was very uplifting. Um, it, it's, it felt like I was present. It felt like there were things that were positive that could happen. I don't know. It's hard to really put into words if you haven't had this experience, but it was a very different feeling. And the next night, um, I drew my wife sitting on the couch. And again, you know, first I was like, I can't draw people, blah, blah, blah. You know, all that kind of stuff could go through. But instead, I just looked at her and I just kind of drew what I saw. And I realized that in the couple of years since the accident, I hadn't been able to see her. This woman who I had been in love with, who I had married, who was the mother of my kid, um, I wasn't able to see her. I just saw her as this problem, wheelchair, just hospitals. Um, but drawing her, I saw again, like I saw her. I saw her beauty. I saw who she was. I saw who she meant to me. 
And uh, was it a great drawing? It was great in its meaning to me in my life, yeah. And so I started to just carry a sketchbook with me and I would walk to work and I would stop and I would draw a building. It was before there was such a thing as urban sketching. It was just drawing buildings in the street. Um, and then I would, you know, at lunch I would go out and I would sit in the park and I would draw a tree or draw a garbage can or whatever for my sandwich that I was eating. And it was just a way of communing and connecting and my sketchbook, and I would write a few little words about what I was thinking or what I saw or a joke or an overheard piece of conversation or whatever. And I would write it. And then that became this ongoing thing was having this, this connection to this stuff. Um, and I guess the more I drew the quote unquote better, I got at doing it. I had more confidence. My line quality got better. Uh, I look back on those early drawings and, um, you know, I can tell that they're a beginner's drawing, whereas now I don't draw that way. But uh, that had nothing to do with what the experience was. It was just something that was actually really natural, really natural way of drawing. Um, and it had this particular meaning, you know, um, and I didn't really show it to people for a long time. Then eventually it became a book. The first drawings that I did became a book called Everyday Matters. And then eventually that became like a discussion board on Yahoo in 2003 or something like that. It became a big thing on um, Flickr. There were like hundreds of thousands of drawings. People were just realizing like, oh, you can just draw anything. Like you don't have to draw the stuff they tell you to draw in art school. You don't have to draw the stuff that they teach you, even in drawing books, like draw a bowl of fruit or draw you know, a naked lady or whatever it was like, you can just draw your dog sleeping. You can draw your dog taking a dump. You can draw your beaten up shoes. You can draw the view out the window. It doesn't matter. It's drawing. That's what matters. And um, so, yeah, everything kind of came out of that medicine cabinet drawing, um, which is over 25 years ago. Yeah. So that's, that's how I started to draw. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's a very interesting and a very insightful story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I was thinking about the the first drawing itself. It's good we circled back to it. And I was uh, I just spoke with an artist who draws in in conflict zones. So he draws in pla uh, places uh, where there are refugees in Syria and Afghanistan, where uh, the cities are devastated by the effects of war and uh, strife. And we were talking about how a drawing, no matter of what it is, and no matter how unpleasant or negative a subject might be, a drawing is biased towards the subject. That's how he put it. And I'm thinking of expanding that thought that a drawing is naturally always bringing out the beauty in whatever it is that we see. And that thing that we see could be something quite unpleasant or could be something associated with unpleasant ideas in our mind. But simply the act of drawing, it brings something, some kind of appreciation about it, some kind of positivity about it, even more than, even more than capture. And it's not simply about capturing it because you could take a picture of somebody or something that's terrible and it would still look terrible. But nevertheless, if you made a drawing of it, some part of that process, maybe it has just generally to do with the artistic process that, you know, even 
a dictators wanted portraits of themselves because a portrait in itself gives some some positive feeling or some beauty to whatever has been rendered what do you think about that yeah i mean unlike a photograph a drawing has to pass through a human being to be made yeah and so what we're drawing isn't what we see it's what we feel as well and and everything is passing through us and and there can be great beauty in tragedy right i mean there's so so much art and music has have been made about about terrible things but um you know i think i think we process it as, as we're experiencing it we're processing it and um i did another book that's that uh is called a kiss before you go and it was about when my first wife passed away, uh, not because of her injuries, but because of another accident. And she passed away. Um, and I did a book that was about the year after she died. And so my son was 15 and we had this year together and I was drawing and painting about that year. Um, and for the first month or so after she died, I couldn't bring myself to do it. But then I started to draw, um, to record, to continue to record our lives. Uh, and our lives now were really changed again, of course. And we had this, um, this hole that we had to fill and drawing showed me how much I still had, you know, and how much my wife still meant, even though she was not here. Um, and you know, it was a lot of these small things in our lives. Cause I was just drawing like the stuff in our house and like clothes and, pots and pans and stuff like that drawing all that stuff having it processing it like putting it into my body and bringing it out in the throw of my hands um allowed me to engage with it and and i don't know if you look at those drawings if you would feel that you know i mean you could you know you could certainly be like goya and draw you know scenes of horrible destruction and you would respond to the subject matter but you can also i mean i think about that uh Egon Schiele, Egon Schiele did that drawing. It was the last drawing he did of Edith, his wife, who had just died of the Spanish flu, and he died three days later. And he did this drawing of her on her deathbed. The last drawing he did, beautiful, sensitive drawing. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Um, and it's just a woman lying down. I mean, he's drawn her a million times before, but there's something about that drawing, that, and maybe it's because you know what what it was about. But so I think I think there's some if you that comes back to the nation notion of true authenticity, allowing yourself to not think, well, I wonder if anybody will like this drawing, but just say, I'm here in this moment. I'm making a drawing while I'm feeling this thing, while I'm engaging with this moment. And, you know, and it's also like wabi sabi, you know, that Japanese concept of of how things um, take on their the lives that the object the lives that objects lead that they take on wear and tear and cracks and, and that there's beauty in that as well, you know? And that's another thing that, I mean, there's nothing more boring than drawing like a brand new glass skyscraper with straight lines, right? There's nothing more drawing bo boring than drawing a supermodel who's been heavily airbrushed, you know, and, and Photoshopped and is perfect. We love, you know, our drawings like to catch imperfections. The, like to catch particularities, like to catch that the you know what makes this unique, 
what makes it authentic? This of all things, what is the things that we're looking at and saying like, ah, oh, I see how this has lived. You know, that's, that's what makes it beautiful. Yeah. And drawing often becomes a way to, to discover that kind or discover that beauty, that appreciation for that beauty in yourself. Like, uh, the idea of, you know, something having objective beauty, it's, like I, I kind of rebel against that idea because we just use that to think about things that are quote unquote pretty and beauty also comes from, like you mentioned. Or perfect, or perfect. Yeah, or, or perfect, right. Absolutely perfect proportions, perfect as defined by the standards of the day, often uh, than not. And the idea of wabi-sabi, that things gather beauty in their imperfections and they gather value the more they are used. It's something that's innately uh, part of me. Like I've always felt that way. And growing up in India, growing up in Calcutta, we often treat historic buildings in that way that the older they are, the more valuable they get. And I grew up in a city which had a lot of old derelict bungalows and places that you could see had grandeur maybe a hundred years ago. They were They were owned and used by people who were extremely wealthy, who had a lot of things going on. A lot of the literature of the time was based around families like this, but now they have fallen to bad, uh, worse times, unfortunate times. And they carry that character. The the growing vine next to a building that nobody lives in anymore is a sign of how long nobody has lived in that building. How long has it been abandoned? And that that also adds character. And that's something that you see only if you give it your time which is what drawing in, ends up giving us. Like you mentioned that when you drew your wife for the first time, you looked at her after, you really looked at her after a long time. And I'm thinking of how, uh, what is this difference between looking and seeing? And I also use these words interchangeably, so I might use them in a different context later, but to really spend time with something, to look at, to regard all its aspects, and then to try to put it through this human filter in which firstly I see and I interpret, and then I the other filter, which is through the level of my skill, I'm able to depict it on paper or another surface. Both of these filters involve an appreciation and understanding and some kind of, some kind of, some kind of, uh, trying to make sense of what it is and trying to make sense of how it, how it is before us. And those are things that involve time. So really the most important thing we give when we draw, and I'm thinking of the, the value of, of drawing in today's times is that we give things time. And that's something that we don't seem to give to anything anymore. We have so little time to give to things. We are always jumping from one thing to another. I guess binge watching this is a way we give time, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, I think there's two ways of looking at time because I think um, there are drawings that I've done or drawings that I'm sure you've seen that are um, took a lot of time and sometimes are dead because of it. Overthought, overworked, right? Static. Um, and then there are drawings that are done very, very quickly and gesturally, like three lines, and you go, that totally captures that moment. 
but there's time involved with both of those. Obviously, the first one, uh, there's a lot of time spent laboring over the page. But I think there's the second case to do a drawing like that, that is gestural, fluid, confident, takes years of time, right, to get there, to get to the point where you can do that kind of thing. I mean, I think, like, I've seen, when you talk about urban sketching, so when I, um, when I lived in New York, I lived right by Washington Square Park, and people would come and draw the arch. Students at NYU taking classes, they would come with a drawing board and a T-square, and they would spend all this time like measuring things and doing these drawings. They were terrible, terrible. You know, but then I look at a, like my friend Felix Scheinberger, you know, he just draws so effortlessly and quickly and energetically, and there's so much, you know, but he draws constantly every day and has for probably 50 years, you know? So, um, you know, I think time, a lot of times when we say this drawing is bad, it's because you didn't take enough time, right? You, and, and it isn't necessarily, you didn't take a lot of time on the drawing, but you didn't spend the time to look and really say, okay, how long is that line? What is that angle? Um, you know, those kinds of things. So, I think it's important to do that to some extent, but also one of the things that happens with time is you can grow impatient, you know, and so that impatience can come out in your drawing too. So then you suddenly you have like hatching that is hurried and, and crude and, you know, filled, it looks like, you know, you just filled in the last part of it better to walk away from the drawing and leave part of it blank than to do that. You know, it's like, again, it takes time, like with meditation, it takes time to train yourself to work at the same pace, to feel like, you know, because if you're feeling impatient and hurried and lack of confidence and all those things, it will come out. It will be there in your drawing. And your drawing is like a seismograph that is recording your inner vibrations. And, uh, you know, people may or may not see it, but it's in there. I, I, that's an aspect of drawings that I actually really like, which is why I like to look at people's sketchbooks because Again, it's just like that concept of wabi-sabi, right? Like if you get irritated towards the end of a drawing and you can see that it is also a record of who you were at that time and how you felt in that moment, no matter where you were. And you could be irritated for so many reasons. You could be, it could be because it's, you're drawing something you don't, uh, you're not good at drawing that aspect or that feature. It could be that you're tired or bored of doing this for so long. It could be that you're simply uncomfortable in that location at that time, the weather or the way you're seated or people around you and things. And that's also a stamp that's so unique that won't come if you did it again, if you did it another time or someone else did it. It's only you in your character at that location, at that point at, in time, doing it in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting also when you draw with other people. Um, it reminds me, I went hiking once in uh, in Los Angeles, and I was with three other people, women, who were shorter than me, like seven or eight inches shorter than me. So we were walking down this, this hill. We'd been walking quite a long time, like five or six miles. We're coming down this hill, and I'm trying to keep pace with them. And so I'm not walking at my natural pace. And I ended up like, severely like cramping my leg and so forth just because I was walking in a way that wasn't my natural gait. Right. When I go drawing, I have two friends who I've drawn with quite a lot. 
one draws very quickly and energetically. One draws really slowly and methodically. And the three of us have gone out and drawn. And one friend will be done in five, 10 minutes. My other friend will be happy to spend two, three hours, you know? And then for me, it's like, you know, and so I'll sort of, you know, the first friend will be done. And then he's sort of like walking around, he's talking and he's, you know, and I'll say like, go and draw something else from another angle. Like, let us continue working. But, but then I'll try and keep pace with my friend who draws slower and I'll do horrible drawings overworked. I'm like, no, this isn't really good. Let me put on another layer of watercolor. Let me bring in a color pen. Let me follow and try and do what he's doing. It's awful. And, um, and I think like I personally, while I love the urban sketching movement, I personally have found it very challenging to go out on sketch crawls with people because of this thing of like, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not being me. I'm working like you. And I think it's like, it's, I think we all have our paces and I think you can change it. I think like, like exercise, you can have more endurance. So you don't, you don't um, kind of flake out early, but it's definitely a physical thing. And, you know, your attention is hard to maintain your attention for that long and to focus in on these little things for as long as that, you know, it's, 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 it is a, yeah. And I like that, uh, what you said about the sketch walks and different paces, because I've, I've experienced that in, in different ways. So uh, I'm a fast artist, so maybe not five or 10 minutes, but I would like to finish a scene that I'm drawing in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And beyond that, I start to wear out, I start to get irritated. And so I, I'm likely to leave my pages unfinished as someone might see it, but finished the way I see it, that the point at which I'm done with it is the point that it's done. And uh, I spent the rest of my time in sketch walks while we were still having them, just looking at what other people are doing, walking around, peering over their shoulders and learning from that. And it never quite occurred to me how it might be for someone who is much slower and is around people who are much faster than them and how that might feel, how that might put them off their rhythm uh something similar uh, the time where it was a little un so these are instances where it wasn't uncomfortable for me there were things to do i could walk around the the spot i could look at drawings so i was occupied um but uh, when we started doing these instagram live sessions once lockdown came in and i was drawing with someone i was drawing with paul heaston the first time and he drew for an hour and a half and i wanted to draw just for an hour and then while we were still talking and he kept drawing, I also kept adding more touches to it because what am I going to do? I'm sitting right here. I'm not going to move away. So might as well keep fiddling with it. And in one instance, it became a better drawing because maybe uh, I pushed like it. There's value in pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and just seeing what if I did a little more, what would happen? What if I did uh, this thing a little more and what would happen? And then in another instance, I was with another artist and then it felt like the drawing was definitely overdone. And if I'd done it just naturally, I would have, I would have left it uh, half an hour ago and it would have had that, that look that pleases me when I look at my finished drawing, that it looks like all the right parts are detailed and the things that I don't care about are not, but it gathers that otherwise when it's overworked, it has this uniformity. There's no more a focus to what is it that I wanted to draw. Everything looks equally deliberated. Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it. Um, 
just every piece of texture, every brick is drawn, every window has a reflection in it. Yeah, and it's sort of like, yeah, that's interesting, and you study it, and you can sort of appreciate how much time went into it, but it's not telling a story, really. It's more, it's becoming increasingly like a camera's point of view, um, instead of saying, you know, it's interesting, like I was talking to somebody who, uh, yeah, uh, Ian Fennelly is uh, an artist who we've done a few workshops with, and he does really great urban sketcher, but he never draws, really never draws shadows, because he says, I'm there for three hours. The shadows are changing. So I just don't, I just ignore them. You know, and I think that that's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. Um, so yeah, I think we all have our own styles. And when we are with other people, we, you know, it's harder to be more authentic. It's harder to just be yourself and how you see it. And, you know, so often like you sit where other people are sitting or where there's a comfortable perch, you know, you're not doing all the things that you might've done if you were on your own, where you're like, why am I drawing this building? That's another thing that bothered me. And it's the same thing that bothers me about, um, about life drawing, which I do fairly often, but I have the same feeling like, why am I drawing this person, this stranger? sitting in a basement. Why am I spending three hours drawing this person? I don't know. And then I have these drawings of these people. I just, why did I spend the time doing that? And similarly with, if I'm walking to work and I see a building and I go, yeah, I've like walked by this building 20 times before. And it's sort of interesting. And, oh, there's a pigeon sitting up there. And I'm thinking I'm going to draw this one. But if you're with a bunch of people, it's like, well, we're going to meet at such and such thing. We're all going to do this. And you say, okay. Right. Yeah. My drawing is always affected by, uh, something like being being with people who aren't artists, for example, I feel obligated to not simply stop and make my drawing. So I end up skipping over things that are interesting to me and only stopping when it's convenient for everybody else to stop. And that's, that's a sacrifice. It, it irritates me, even though, uh, even though I do get a drawing in the end, maybe, but it's not I know that that 30 minute walk would have captured some other things and they would have said some other things that they didn't, that I didn't say as a result. Yeah. It's, to me, it's like the equivalent of when you go to a restaurant with 20 people, you know, how horrible that is. Like you, you go to a restaurant, you're sitting at a giant table, you're having fun talking to people, but then it comes time to order food. And then it's just the whole, the, the actual eating experience is terrible. I, I, I don't know. It just occurred to me that maybe it's the same. It's like, yeah, you know, this is the equivalent of like splitting a bill with 20 other people. Uh, I'm thinking of the, the title of your first book. I really like the title. It's, it's witty. It has a double meaning. Every day matters and every day matters. And I, I like that. I like, I like when things are puns for one thing, that's just me, but I also like it when a pun is an opportunity to consider something another way and not just, not just trying to be funny because, Hey, look, it also means this, this other thing, but how isn't, isn't that concept really important? Like, I feel like we are losing this idea of what is worthy of art. You just spoke about it also every day matters and all these little things that are part of every day, if every day matters, then every day can't be spectacular. And, and every day is filled with quite ordinary, commonplace things in our lives. And all of those things matter. But increasingly, and this is, uh, this is maybe also a problem with people who don't draw from observation so much. And I don't know, maybe you can fill me in that we only think certain things are worthy of art and therefore certain things are worthy of mattering 
to us. Yeah, well, it goes back to, you know, for a long time, artists didn't paint self-portraits. I mean, there were a few, Rembrandt, um, there were a few that did, but generally they didn't paint self-portraits because nobody would buy them, you know, or they would use a self-portrait as an indication of like, this is what I can do, you know? So generally you made art for stuff that people would buy um, and people didn't want stuff that was super particular to you. You know, in the modern era, we're all important. Everybody's a celebrity now, right? So, you know, but you take someone like Vermeer, like Vermeer was painting really kind of mundane things, sort of interesting, right? Painting like, you know, a maid filling a bucket or whatever. It was like, it was pretty ordinary stuff. It wasn't like Jesus coming down from the heavens or a giant battle or a king. It was just like pretty simple stuff. And, and I think that that stuff really resonates with us now. Van Gogh, again, postman, his landlady, you know, really simple stuff. And I think we now, we're all equal. We can all be celebrities. We're, everything we do is all, man, I mean, it's kind of gotten distorted now where people are creating fake versions of their lives. But by and large, you know, the fact that we have this technology that we carry around with us, you know, I remember when Instagram first began and people were just taking pictures of like what they ate or just this ordinary stuff. And the, like you had a filter that would kind of make it look fancy, but it was all just pretty. I mean, that's how I use my phone a lot of the time. A lot of time I use my phone as a diary, just to take a picture of something, not to have as a picture, but just so then later on I'm looking through my pictures and I go, Oh yeah, that's right. We ate at that restaurant that night or whatever, you know? And a lot of times for me, that's what my sketchbook was like. I would, we would go out to a restaurant we're waiting for the food. I'm sitting there and I'm just drawing like the salt and pepper shakers on the table. And I'm writing down, we ate at such and such a place and uh, we did this, or, you know, I'll draw a pile of dirty laundry and say, we've really got to do the laundry today. Or, um, you know, I'll draw my son's toys lying on the floor or his old teddy bear. Uh, you know, it's just like, I like the act of drawing. And so I don't really care what it is I'm drawing, but I might as well draw the things that are around, you know, like, and so, as opposed to like setting up a composition. It just seems like we're weird. It seems like a weird thing to do. Um, and again, it feels like, you know, Instagram, Instagram famous to do that as opposed to just saying like, there's my toothbrush. And, uh, you know, I mean, I did a whole sketchbook of, um, drawings of my teacup because I would, every morning was the same thing. I'd get up, go into the kitchen, put on the kettle, wait for the water to boil pour the water into a teacup with a tea bag, wait for the tea bag to steep. And then have, so it was like, you know, nine to 11 minutes, let's say of that whole process every day. And so I put a sketchbook next to my kettle and um, I would just draw that same teacup with one pen and I would do that every morning. And it was just, that's how, that was my first drawing of the day until I filled up a sketchbook with just the same drawing of the same thing over and over again, but it was always interesting to me. I like, it was a good way to start out and I would sort of vary it, revolve the cup a little bit. Maybe the light was slightly different. That was it. That was the only change, but it was just the chance to draw. Uh, so you started drawing and uh, you started observing so many things in everyday life, ordinary things and drawing increasingly became this, this part of you. 
but it was still a considerable amount of time later that you decided to give it all of your time and you left left your full time job uh and i read in your bio and this was interesting to me that at different times different people have asked you to do just that to just to leave your corporate job and to be a full time writer and artist uh what 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 were the kind of things that do you feel like you you hesitated to take that leap or did you did you do you think that now looking at it that you timed it perfectly uh what what were these what were the like how how were they able to sense this in you that you wanted you did you express a desire to leave that life and to be a full-time writer at any point well none of them were my banker or my accountant so um you know i think it's one of those things where people see that you do something and they go oh you should do that why are you doing this you should do that and i was like well i'm I kind of like doing this too. I'm not bad at it. So, you know, and I, and also, I mean, I wrote while I was in advertising, I wrote, I don't know, six or seven books that I had published. So, I mean, I did, I actually, in some ways I've, I've actually written probably fewer books since I left. So it wasn't, it wasn't, that wasn't what it was about. Um, I think it was partly like, I felt like I had done advertising. I, I mean, I had done, more or less everything that there was to do. Um, and I wanted to try and do some other stuff. That was part of what it was. I don't think I left in order to draw more necessarily, because in some ways when I was in advertising, I needed to draw, you know, it's like I needed, it was like I was sitting at the desk all the time and I was sitting in meetings and I, I needed that. It's kind of like once you can do it all the time, you don't need it so much. So that did change. But um, I wanted to, I wanted to teach, and I wanted to make stuff in other forms that that would take more time. Um, so, you know, and then I didn't really think of it at the time, but I did eventually start a business, and um, I started to to teach. I mean, I'd never, I never had been a student, so I didn't really know how to be a teacher. I'd never taught, learned art. Um, and I had to figure out like, how do you teach this thing that I've kind of figured out by, you know, making a cup of tea in the morning? How do I teach somebody that? Um, so that took me some figuring out. And, um, yeah, I also, I also felt like the thing that I had learned from doing it all these years was something that I don't think I hadn't really read a lot of books about it. I read a lot of books on how to draw but nobody had really talked about like why this thing mattered to people. Uh, and I had done, you know, I'd written a couple books about it, but I really thought like, that's something that I'd like to try and spread the message of a bit more. Uh, and also figure out more about it, learn, learn more about it. Uh, so yeah, so that, 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 that's really what it became. It, I can't say again, as I said earlier, I did, didn't have a plan. It just happened. It's kind of, I mean, it didn't just happen. I did quit and I, I quit and I gave my job. I forget it was several months, maybe six months notice. It took a while for me to leave. Um, but meanwhile, I also left and I moved to Los Angeles for a year and I had a garage that I could work in for the first time. So I had an actual place where I could, and, and I started doing some paintings. I'd actually did some larger scale paintings on cardboard and I did like some really big paintings. So that was something that, that was came about because I was not living in New York anymore. Um, but I, and I also, but really the biggest reason that I left Los Angeles, left New York to go to LA was I was afraid that if I stayed in New York, 
within three months, I would be working in another advertising job. Really? I mean, I, cause I, I mean, I knew that some people would come after me and they would start tempting me with stuff and, and then I would have another job. And then that, that window that had opened briefly would shut again and I would be back to what I had been doing. And yeah, it's, you mentioned not having a plan and it occurs to me that a lot of people would be paralyzed when not having a plan and just not be able to take a decision in any direction. And it reminds me a little bit of how I took uh, my own decisions. Like I, I quit in the middle of a PhD program in order to be a writer instead. And uh, I didn't plan to be a, an artist, but I was also a cartoonist on the side. I was drawing with stick figures because I couldn't draw any better than that either. And I only accidentally became an artist and I tried to be better at drawing simply because I wanted to draw better comics. And I thought, I can't have a very long run with stick figures. I need to start making them look a little bit prettier. <laughs> I need to start saying more complex stories and people need to recognize who the hell I'm talking about. So I need to learn how to draw. And then suddenly I fell into this thing where somebody wanted to buy my art and I sold them a drawing and completely flabbergasted at the idea that they wanted to pay me for just a drawing. And I didn't have to be funny and I didn't have to put word balloons around it. And I didn't have to convince them that it was worth money. And then that started happening more and more. And I chased that feeling. So I wonder if it was like that for you, that you, you, you pursued so many forms of creative expression. You're a speaker, you've been writing while working full time. You've been writing as well. You've been an artist, you're a podcaster. Uh, is there, is there an inner compass of some kind of, some direction that you're going, some kind of expression that you seek, uh, even even though there isn't, you know, a structured plan to to what you do. I don't know. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> I do a lot of things because I like doing a lot of things. I'm not doing it in order to really achieve anything in particular. Um, and my wife is always saying that to me. She'll say, like, why, why are you doing that now as well? And I'll say, I don't know. It seems pretty cool. It seems I wanted to learn about that, you know. Um, like I, I had done a podcast two years ago and then the f I ended it. I didn't shut the podcast down, but I, but I've been thinking about it ever since. And I enjoy doing a podcast. So I decided to, to bring it back. But now I decided, unlike this podcast, that my episodes would be 10 minutes long. So now I do a podcast every week. It's 10 minutes long. Um, but it was partly because I just wanted to, honestly, I wanted to learn how to use my mixing board. That, that more than anything, I was like, this mixing board is really cool. It has all these things and I want to figure out some use for it. And, uh, that, and, and I like, I like making, I just like making things. Um, and so that's kind of, I mean, you know, like there are these guys on YouTube makers who are like, you know, they'll make like a star Wars lightsaber or whatever. They'll just figure out how to do it. And it's like, why? because it's, I just wanted to make it. And then there are other people watching. They go like, that's cool. Like I should do that. I, I think it's just this natural thing that you just kind of want to do stuff. And that's, that's how I am. Yeah. And, and, and I used to worry that I had to make money doing it. I used to worry that like I had to be good at it enough to get a job at it. And then I had to compete with other people who do it. And then I realized like, no, just screw it. Just make it. And maybe something will happen. I think when it comes to making plans, my wife had said a really smart thing, which is she said, you, she said, if you open up space in your life, things will happen. And she also said, I know that if you ever need money, 
you always figure out ways to make it. And so those things gave me freedom because they said, um, and it was true. I mean, sketchbook school, my business happened because I was invited to speak at a conference in Amsterdam. And while I was there, I said on Facebook, um, is anybody want to meet up for coffee? Who's follows me on Facebook and a person did. And we ended up starting this business together, had no plans to do it. Uh, it just kind of happened because I allowed it to happen. Uh, so I'm not necessarily like a, I say yes to everybody kind of person, but I definitely think that trying to control your life and to plan it all out, it just doesn't work for me. I, I, I kind of work by my gut and I'm, I'm occasionally surrounded by people who are pretty good at making plans and forcing me into them. That's what my career in advertising was. Like somebody would say, okay, here's a brief. It needs to be done. And I used to think like, maybe I should start an ad agency. I had friends who did that. And I would think, oh, that just wasn't where I wanted to put my energy. And now I run a business and we have, you know, a bunch of people who work for us and we have goals we have to make. And there are people who sort of control that and manage me into it. Um, But yeah, I just, that's not what I'm meant to do, I guess. I, I like that answer actually, because uh, I'm, I'm a person also who chases their curiosity and I'm excited by things I can learn and I'm excited by new things that I can do and having that a clear idea of not, not my end goal, but just another horizon of something, something interesting there. Maybe I can go and find out something interesting here. Maybe I can, maybe I can talk into a mic and see where that goes and maybe I can get some interesting conversations out of it and maybe I'll learn some things and being keyed into those primary things of what are our prime movers in our mind, in our lives. And I think, I think that's, that's what's key here. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice. You talked about sketchbook school because, uh, I wanted to touch upon that as well. Uh, what, what was the idea behind it? And, uh, you've already put, uh, did you have at that time already put together the books of uh, various people's sketchbooks? Because another part of this question is I want to know, uh, what are some good uses of a sketchbook, whether or not you're an artist, irrespective of that fact? All right. That's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, so sketchbook school began, I had been, I had been, um, kind of convinced to teach a workshop and I taught it in a, in a, a kind of a retreat in Massachusetts for three days. And, um, they had recommended I have 20 people. I ended up having 50 people and I lost my voice. And it was also kind of nerve wracking because I sort of like, as I said earlier, I just don't, didn't really know what to teach or how to teach it. So I kind of made that up, figured it out, had all these people. I had a really, really, really nice time, really fun. But I thought, okay, I kind of had a fantasy, like maybe that's what I'll do. But then I thought, how can I? Like, this is so exhausting. And it's, and it's really challenging. So, um, but what I did know, I knew a lot about, uh, I knew a lot about the internet. I mean, I've been on, I built my first website in like 1995 or six, really, really early on. I worked on, um, I worked on IBM when IBM first went on the, the internet again in the mid nineties. So, and I had created, um, a community for people in wheelchairs in like two, 1998 or something. And then I created the, um, the thing I mentioned before on Yahoo board in 2003. So I'd had a lot of experience with doing different kinds of things. 
I also had a lot of experience with video production because I'd made a lot of commercials and I knew a lot about that. And I had a, I was a member of the, of the DGA, the director's guild, because I had directed commercials and there's a lot of things that I knew how to do. And so I had thought it would be interesting to teach online. And this is early, this is when it just wasn't being done that much. I mean, now it's become such a huge thing, but so I thought I'd like to teach, but I also don't want to do all the teaching myself. So my plan was to get a bunch of my friends who were also artists and we would film a course where each of us would teach for a week and it would be six weeks long. We did that. Um, and we sold out, we had 2000 people signed up for that. So it was surprising. It did quite well. And then we ran it again and another 2000 people signed up for it. So it was like, okay, this is like a pretty good thing. We were charging like a hundred bucks for it. So it, you know, it was like, this is an actual business. And so it kind of happened from that. And then we did another one, we did another, we ended up doing 26 courses overall. Um, and then now we do, we do live workshops. We do a whole bunch of other things. And, and we also have a membership program now where I, um, where people can work together. And that was a very important thing to me was like, how can we create community so that people can support each other? From the beginning, that was what I what mattered to me the most because I live in New York City, or I did for most of this time, and I was surrounded by creative people. But I knew that there were a lot of people who live in small towns or where not only are there not creative people, but creative people are frowned upon. And it's not a thing that you do. There may not even be an art supply store. Or, you know, creative people are weirdos, whatever. So I wanted to have a way for the people to connect no matter where they were. And so that's that's really the thing that I built was this. And we ended up having about 50,000 people have taken our classes and, and it's, you know, and for some of them, it's just like, Oh, I'll take a watercolor class. But for a lot of them, it's also a thing that they want to be part of year after year after year. And so I set up this membership program where we now meet on zoom every day and we do all different kinds of things. Um, we bring in artists, we visit them in their studios, we do assignments, we take courses out of my course library, and we do projects from them. Um, but it's just a chance to, when you feel the urge to draw, to make an appointment with yourself and say, you know what, five o'clock on Thursday, put it in my book, I'm going to spend an hour drawing with these people. And so that uh, has been really rewarding to have this thing that is an ongoing thing that, that, and there, and there are people who are in my community who've been part of it for almost 20 years. Um, and again, some of them have gone on to become quote unquote professional artists to open Etsy stores, to have galleries, to publish books. But a lot of them just like doing it. They just like drawing, they do it. Um, they filled a lot of sketchbooks and this is what they do. So, you know, and it's, it's comparable to the urban sketching movement. The politics are different. I find that I find the urban sketching movement to be a bit exhausting that way, but um, it's it is uh, a chance to meet other people who care about the same thing you do. And um, once you find out that you have that in common, a lot of times you find that you have other things in common too, and you can become real friends with people, which is really which is really great. But also, you have somebody to go to and say, "Why do I suck?" or "What pen are you using?" or "How often should I draw?" or can you recommend any other artists I should look at? Whatever it is, you're not alone, not alone. So that's yeah. Cool. And I love this idea that it encourages all kinds of people to create, 
and it's there, there's this barrier that occurs to me and it's also uh, aptly it's also titled in your latest book and I, I would love for you to talk about that now is how to draw without talent and talent is such a strange word to me i have so many issues with it uh, i've been not good at drawing for the longest time but now that i am and i need uh, somebody looks at my work and they've never seen me before they've never seen my drawings before they tell me how talented i am and that it grinds my gears it rubs me the wrong way and it frustrates me because it's not talent i say at least in how i think of it it's not talent i i worked a really long time i was really frustrated for a long long time many years i gave up so many times and then i did it again and now i can draw so don't call it talent and in this kind of thinking i'm treating talent as and maybe they are also treating talent at least i think they are that they're treating talent as something you either have or you don't have the same way we think about creativity you know there are creative people and there are non creative people there are people who have ideas and there are people who can't have ideas and that's that it feels sometimes like a way that people voluntarily disqualify themselves from this process uh maybe it maybe it makes some people feel a little nicer knowing that unfortunately they are just not born with it otherwise they could have created things and they would have created things if they had that visible talent but they don't how do you feel about this word how do, how does it how do, how have you encountered it in different ways what is it what does it mean to you and how do you approach how do you approach it i think in some ways if somebody says you're talented it's a compliment but it's also an insult it's like oh you're so good looking your parents must have been good looking or oh you're so well dressed you must be rich or you must have been born into money no i work like you say i worked hard at this um but you know it, it doesn't really matter because if talent is a god given thing you know if if you go back to the the greeks and the idea of the muse if the muse didn't visit you what are you going to do you know it's it's an excuse to say i can't draw because i have no talent but my theory is you can't draw because you don't draw uh if you you know if you sat down and did it it's to, in some ways you know i mean i've often used the analogy of driving you know and uh the book i wrote called the creative license the idea of the license in it is like and i draw the analogy to when you first started to to drive so you didn't know how to drive you weren't born knowing how to drive um you took lessons you practiced you were bad but you really wanted to drive so you kept practicing and you put yourself into different situations and then you drove longer and you had some disasters occasionally um and then you know then now you just drive without even thinking about it anymore drawing is kind of like that um it's something that you have to be really conscious about when you start doing it it's and you also think that because you see other people who can do it that you should if you can't do it it's because you know you don't have talent they how come they can do it when you can't well and 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 you could also say to yourself well they went to art school well i don't know a lot of people who got a lot better at making art in art school i mean they learned a lot about the business of making art and they worked hard during that period and that helped them but it's very few art 
students tell me that oh, I had an amazing teacher, that they're, they're the reason I do it. You have an art, an art, you know, teachers who open your eyes to certain things, but in the end, you stayed up really late at night and you worked hard at it night after night, week after week, you filled lots of sketchbooks and eventually you could just do it without thinking. And so, but if you don't have the, the benefit of talent, you have to have another reason for doing it. And also, frankly, having talent, I think, I mean, I have one friend who ever since we were little was just incredible at drawing, incredible, could draw anything. And this doesn't seem fair. I didn't understand what he did. You know, he's actually gone on to become a really successful artist. Um, his painting self for seven figures. And you go like, well, of course. But, you know, he's also been like a miserable human being. Um, he's had terrible, disastrous things happen in his life. And, you know, but he also worked really hard at painting and uh, wasn't successful for a long time and was a carpenter and then eventually like became successful at it. So who cares? Like, yeah, he was easy. He was good. And then he got better and I was not good. And then I got better too. So I just think, don't worry about it. Just don't think about it. Don't use it as a crutch or an excuse. Just draw. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that sense, how to draw without talent is almost just as liberating for the non-artist as it is for an artist, because it's just this unnecessary thing in front of us. Am I talented enough? Does talent uh, determine whether I'll be ever ever be good enough, and it's it's that ninety nine versus one percent kind of thing, right? Like we're just bothering and uh, predicating over that one percent benefit that some kind of natural talent might bring us, and ignoring the ninety nine percent that comes just simply from hard work, and and that's that's about success. It has nothing to do with happiness. You could be completely quote unquote, talentless, but you could be supremely happy with your drawings. You could find unbelievable joy in the act of painting, even if nobody cares and nobody pays you money for those paintings. Who cares? That's that's not, not, not central to the act of creation. I know. I know a lot of people who love to draw and they kind of, um, you know, you look at them and go like, I'm not sure how talented you are, but that's, they like, love doing it. So <laughs> good, do it. It's not, it's not a problem. It's not, it's only a problem if you uh, limit yourself because of it, but that's your choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am thoroughly talked out. I good, have good. Uh, asked you about all the things I wanted to ask you about. And I'm not sure if anybody's listening anymore. So <laughs> I yes. feel like maybe. Yeah, it's quite possible that people have dropped out by now. I hope somebody will take a break at some point and come back to this second half of this conversation, especially because it happened in the opposite direction that I wanted to go. So control uh, is an, control is an illusion. Yeah, the things I wanted to ask you at the start of the conversation are the things that I asked you in this last half an hour, and the things that I thought we would touch upon later, and then it would have we would have built up to it are the things we started this conversation with. So uh, I don't know which order people should listen to it, but I'll try to put in a break in the middle and hopefully give people time to breathe. And Maybe should be more, maybe should be more episodes in one. I, I could do that too. I could split this into two episodes. It would be really nice. I know so many people who, I don't know how, how, how reachable you are for conversations to the artists that I know who admire you, but 
i know so many people who would love to who would love to hear this conversation so thank you so much for this amazing amazing opportunity yeah and i'm i mean i'm reachable in lots of different forms you can reach mm-hmm. me at sketchbook school you can reach me at, on my website um you can vaguely reach me on instagram but probably not or you can email me danny at sketchbookschool.com or danny at dannygregory.com i'm i'm available um and i'll try to write back to you as soon as i can If you're still here, thank you. You're my favorite kind of listener. I want to just throw in a few more links and tell you about a couple things that I'm doing which you might be interested in. There's a Facebook group for this podcast. Um to join it, there's a link in the show notes. On the Facebook group, I ask questions and run polls that help me kind of decide what I want to do going forward with the podcast. Also, if you're interested and if you've enjoyed this episode, consider supporting my work. If you pledge to buy me a cup of coffee every month you can become a member of this podcast and that comes with a whole other set of privileges that are really exciting and really interesting for example i'm trying to start now a monthly private zoom session with other members in which we talk about the podcast in which we share our ideas from the latest episode and we can interact with each other and hopefully learn some more things and i'd i'd love to hear from you because as i've found out a lot of my listeners have very interesting insights from the show and i'm always curious to know how people coming in from different backgrounds from practicing art in different ways how they feel about what they listen to and what i'm able to offer them i learn i feel just as much as they learn from me so thank you for listening and i'll see you in the next episode mm-hmm.